Last week we were talking about that we're in the middle of another count. Is there no end to the counting? You know, but counting can be good. Counting reminds you. Counting keeps you present. And that's exactly what these counts are about. We talked about the 40-ness of Lent, that there is a 40-day count um, from Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday. And that that 40 always represents the time of trial and testing, initiation, preparation for a rebirth. And specifically, in terms of Lent, the rebirth of Easter. But starting actually on the Jewish calendar on Palm Sunday the week before, another count started. And for us here in the church, it started on Easter Sunday. But this count is to 49, plus one for 50, right? And this is the count between Easter and Pentecost. Pentecost just means 50 or 50th in Greek. And so it's just the 50th day. But the 49 is interesting because it's seven times seven. That's spiritual perfection times spiritual perfection. And if you think about it, and what we talked about last week was that Passover in the Jewish mind is the physical liberation of the people. It celebrates the physical liberation from, of the people from Egypt, the Exodus. Shavuot, which will coincide with our Pentecost, is the giving of the law that commemorates and celebrates the spiritual liberation of the people, the creation of a new government, a new culture, a new relationship with their God that they didn't have previously. The physical liberation and the spiritual liberation, these two liberations are key. We talked about when Jesus was trying to get through Nicodemus's thick skull, what was going on here. You must be born of water and you must be born of spirit if you wish to see the kingdom. And of course, he, ensconced in his physical mind, in his rational, egoic mind, responds, how do you climb back into your mother's womb when you're old? How can you be born again? And Jesus, you could just literally see him smacking his forehead. You know, you're the leader of Israel and you don't know these things? You don't get it? You know? And he talks about the wind blowing through. You can't see it. You don't know where it's coming from, where it's going to. Yet you see the effects of it. You feel the effects of it. He says, so is everyone who's born of spirit. It's a graduation from the physical, a graduation from the rational mind, a graduation from the egoic self, which is so ensconced in small, limited space, to a more expansive place, a place that can deal with the uncertainties of life, deal with the fact that we can't know the things that we want to know out of our fear. It's a graduation from fear. It's a graduation from all these things. This is what we're preparing for now in this count of 49 plus 1. How do we prepare for Pentecost? Pentecost celebrates the moment of release. Initially, for those first followers of Jesus, the moment of release, and however gradual that is, because it wasn't just one moment, it was a becoming to a breakthrough moment. But it celebrates that moment of release from that rational mind we're talking about, from this egoic self with the limitations that that represents into oneness with everything, the realization that we are all connected, everything is connected, this oneness, this unity that Jesus is always talking about. It's also a release from obedience, mere obedience, just following rules, just following law to a transformance where our will, our desires, our pleasure, deepest purpose, what delights us, lines up with what delights God. 
What is God's pleasure? What is God's deepest purpose? Now, from the outside in, it might look indistinguishable from obedience, but from the inside out, it makes all the difference in the world. To not be following rules, but just what naturally flows into a moment as you experience it because you've been transformed from the inside out. It's, a, it's marking the release from fear of punishment to unity of purpose and will. And most importantly, it's marking the release from the illusion of control, the illusion of certainty, to trust. Mother Teresa said that the greatest need in life is greater trust. And I absolutely agree with her. Trust marks the graduation point. Trust marks this move from the physical liberation to the spiritual liberation, this progression. Trust is the evidence that we have made that kind of progression. Because when you think about it, the need for control, the need for certainty, is driven by all those other things we're trying to graduate from, from this rational mind, from this egoic fear that creates the need for obedience as the antidote to punishment because we fear that, for the certainty that we crave because we're afraid and we can't stand the unknown. And so the key is liberation from fear, if you want to break it all the way down. But you're only going to know that you've been released, that you've graduated to trust when you actually feel the anxiety drop away because the trust is now present in your life. Trust and stress and anxiety are inversely proportional. As one goes up, the other goes down. You know? How do you know you trust something? You're not thinking about it all the time. You're not sitting awake at 2.30 in the morning wondering about it, planning for it, making all these allowances for it. When you trust something, it just goes away. It's just here. It's just something that is bedrock for you. It's like the air that you breathe. When we can accept uncertainty, when we can accept our inherent powerlessness without fear, then that fearless vulnerability is the trust. That's what trust feels like. Not certainty, but vulnerability without fear which is kind of an oxymoron if you think about it. Vulnerability is scary. That's why we all try to avoid it. We try to assume that we have control. We try to assume that we have certainty. But fearless vulnerability is the trust that we're talking about here. Have you ever thought about what the post-Pentecost life looks like? What would that look like? What would that feel like? If you were one of the first followers of Jesus that went through that Pentecost moment, the wind roars through, shakes the building to its foundation, tongues as if a fire are appearing over each head. After that, we see what is going on. The apostles are bold. Peter stands up and gives a speech like he's never given in his entire life. Where did that come? You can imagine all his friends. Where in the heck did that come from? What have you done with Peter? <laughs> who, are you, who are you and what have you done with Peter? So there's this radical change in them. What would that feel like? What does the post-Pentecost life feel like? What does life feel like once you've made this graduation, once we become spirit-filled? Do you think that it's blissful? Do you think that it's certain that all your questions have now been answered? 
even with the apostles' attitude, with their actions at this time, do you think that they were certain? Do you think that they had all their questions answered? Do you think that they lived blissful lives after Pentecost? See, the record in Scripture tells us no. We still see them struggling through the things that they needed to work through. We see them fighting and bickering. We see them doing all the things that people do. And yet we also see them do amazing things, things they could never do before. They had this infilling. They had this power. Even at the end of his life, there's this wonderful story about Peter. Now, it's not in the gospel, so you don't need to believe it if you don't want to, but it's a great traditional story about Peter. At the end of his life, he's working in Rome, and uh, Nero is getting really peeved with the Christians and starting to put the hammer down in terms of persecution. And Peter is one of the targets because he's one of the leaders. And so at a certain point, Peter thinks it's best for him to skedaddle, get out of Rome, and pick up someplace else where the heat isn't so great. He thinks it's best for him personally. He thinks that it's best for the, 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 uh, the church at large and the, the individual gatherings that are coming under his purview. He's got a choice to make. All these different choices, and he doesn't know which one to make. He finally makes a decision, and as he's walking across the Aventine Hill, he meets Jesus coming the other way. And he's shocked, of course. And the line in Latin is beautiful. It's quovatus domine. Quovatus domine. It means, where are you going, Lord? Quovatus. And Jesus says, I'm going back to Rome to be crucified again. And of course, Peter, just everything in him drops. Everything falls because he realizes what Jesus is telling him. And he was making a choice that was taking him out of the connection that he needed the perseverance that he needed. And he turns around and he goes back and he's executed not too long afterwards. But how did he know? He didn't. He didn't have all the answers. He was uncertain. There's this great story about Mother Teresa, and I know I've told it in here before, but it pertains perfectly. That John Cavanaugh, who was a Jesuit priest and a preparing to be a professor at, inst at institutes and, and uh, you know, universities here in the United States. And he hit that same place in his life. Where should he go? Of all the places, of all the paths before him, what should he take? And he needed to find some clarity. So he took a year off to go do ministry work in India. And the first stop was at the Houses of the Poor in Calcutta with Mother Teresa. And so when he gets there, he uh, meets Mother Teresa, and she greets him warmly and says, what can I do for you? He says, please pray for me, Mother. Says, sure. What shall I pray for? Pray, pray that I might find clarity. That's what he wanted, clarity. Which path, Lord? You know, where shall I go? And she says, no, I'm not going to pray for that. He says, why not? She says, because clarity is the last thing that you're clinging to and need to let go of. I will pray that you find trust. And he says, but you seem to have such clarity. And she just laughed. She says, I don't have clarity. I have trust. I will pray that you find trust. See, from the outside, looking in at Mother Teresa, she looked like one of those mountain goats that never missed a step, could jump from rock to rock and just go where she needed to go, four foot nothing, turning the world upside down, accomplishing the things that she had accomplished so sure-footedly, so boldly. 
he assumed that she had the clarity that he craved, that he couldn't see the next step ahead of him. And yet when he talks to her, he realizes from the inside out, she couldn't see any more than he could. But with trust, she could take the next step as if she knew that the ground would materialize under her feet and keep walking. This is a profound difference. We crave clarity, control, certainty because we're fearful. But when we graduate to trust, yes, the uncertainty is still there. The difficulty of life is just as acute. But we experience it in a completely different way. Life after Pentecost is much the same as life before Pentecost. We're still uncertain. Life is still difficult. Nothing has changed, and everything has changed. Life hasn't changed, but we have been changed within the life that we find ourselves living. We've often said in here that the means we use must match the ends that we seek. By that we mean... Just as Jesus said, you're not going to get figs from olive trees. Like breeds like. If you are looking for this post-Pentecost experience of trust, then you can't approach it. You can't prepare for it through fear. It's not going to work. The means we use must match the ends we seek. If we are seeking trust, if we are seeking the awareness of the unity of all things, then we need to be living as if that's already true. And it sounds like a catch-22. How can I live this way if I'm looking to get this way? How does that exactly work? That's where faith comes in. Living as if it's only true without the assurance, without the evidence, but still just putting one foot down and realizing, yes, God is proving trustworthy. I can trust if I keep walking in this way, in this direction. How do we do this? What does it really look like if we're going to live this Pentecost life as if it already has occurred before it has? Let me ask you this. How many of you have worked for uh, a company where you got a guaranteed salary? All right. How many of you have worked freelance or construction or owned your own business? How many of you have done both? (laughs) Okay. Those of you who have done both probably know this better than anyone else. It's a completely different way of living life, isn't it? When you're getting a guaranteed salary, you know that every month it's going to be there. You can plan for it. You can, you know start to make plans far down the road and and plan for this expense and that expense. You can save up, you can do this and that. When you are freelancing, you're always wondering where the next job is coming from. When you own your own business, you're always wondering where the next customer is coming from. It's a whole different experience and way of living life. This was my experience. You know, way back in the day, 30-some years ago, I worked for a healthcare company, and I was director of communications, and I got a regular salary, and I got regular raises, and I got all that good stuff, and, and uh, there was 401k, which I never did. I don't know why, but I never did. But it was there if I wanted it. And then I quit that job, and I got to say, even though it was regular pay and great money at the time, it just drove me crazy. I just couldn't deal with corporate life. But 
when I left there, the next thing I did was to freelance and still doing marketing and corporate communications, but I was freelancing. And it was a com- this completely different kind of thing. Now I had to find the work, I had to do the work, and I had to collect for the work. Everything was, was mine to do. And then I was involved in a couple of startups you know, through the mid-late 90s where we were starting up new companies and try to bring those to fruition. And then I moved from there into nonprofit, and I moved from there into ministry. You know, poor Marion. I was working down the ladder of success nearly our entire married life. And it got more and more uncertain. We didn't know what was going to happen. We would start ministries where there wasn't even any pay yet. It was such a different way of living life. The guaranteed salary fills in all the lows and makes things predictable, but it also cuts off the highs. And it cuts off the, the immediacy, the urgency of life at the same time. It's such a different way of living. I remember there was one Christmas, some of you probably heard this story. Eh, I'll tell it again anyway. One Christmas, we, we started in December, and Mary and I didn't have the money to finish the month. We didn't have the money for the rent. We didn't have the money for Christmas. We just didn't have the money, and we didn't know what we we're going to do. We we're kind of looking at each other, trying to figure it out. And we get an envelope that has a check in it for $5,000. And it was one of those guaranteed loans. You know, you got to pay it back at ridiculous interest rates, you know, like credit card interest rates. But it was supposed to be as good as cash. We kind of looked at each other. All right, here we go. We go to the bank, two of us standing at the teller window, and we give this check to the teller. She looks at us like we just grew antlers or something, and she's looking at this thing, looking at us. Oh, just a moment. And she locks her drawer and goes, and the, she and the manager are huddling, and they're looking over our shoulder. And we felt like criminals, you know, in the bank. But they cashed the check, or they deposited it, and it got us through. That was the life when we were now on our own. Well, we didn't have this covering. We didn't have the salary. It's such a different way of living life. From the certainty of monthly salary to this breathless wondering, this was the difference between the two. Now, keeping that in mind, is there a basic model for life lived in the spirit of Pentecost? So just kind of hold that salary and freelance image. See, the ancient... Hebrews were a communal people. They saw and they referred to themselves often, their entire nation, as a single person. Much of their scripture refers metaphorically to Israel as a single person, as God's son, as God's child. Hosea 11.1, out of Egypt I called my son. And so there's this sense that the entire nation is as if one person, and each person within that nation is as if they are Israel itself. And so the individual experience really had no relevance or meaning outside of the context of the communal experience. It was all one and the same. And so as you look at the history of Israel and you look at the, 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 the shape of the journey of Israel and where they went, you can match it up with your own journey. You can match it up with each of the individual journeys. So Abram, right, who becomes Abraham, he's living a salaried life in Ur of the Chaldees, a well-established, very sophisticated city in the Fertile Crescent between the two great rivers of the Tigris and the Euphrates. And God calls him out of there, and he goes to Haran, which is right on the Turkish-Syria border now. What is this? But right also in the middle of the Fertile Crescent, right near the Euphrates River. But then he gets called again, south down into Canaan. 
He goes from a salaried life. He goes from that type of existence to Canaan, which has no real water source. He goes into a nomadic existence. He's living in tents. He's moving his place around. He goes from Canaan to Egypt, and he's bouncing around. He goes to a freelance life, from salary to freelance. And then three generations later, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Joseph and his 11 brothers, they end up back in Egypt, back into a salaried life, back into the life that is surrounding the Nile River. And then 400 years later, Moses takes them out of the salaried life back into the freelance, back into the nomadic life that they experienced for 40 years in the wilderness before they come to Canaan. This movement back and forth is indicative of what happens in our own experience as individuals. Moving from what we see as certainty, what we see as something that we understand and can control, back into something that we can't. And usually the discomfort of that freelance life, the discomfort of that nomadic existence, brings us back into something that has a sense of some sort of continuity. Back and forth, back and forth. But what Moses does on Sinai is he institutes a law for the people that appears to bring them as far as possible away from the existence that they had with the Egyptians. He tries to just obliterate all of that as possible, completely focusing the people on this life. They call it the Olam Hazeh, this life, as opposed to the Olam Haba, the next life. The Egyptians were obsessed with the next life, obsessed with death. Everything about Israel is obsessed with life, this life, right here, right now. There's absolutely no mention of afterlife in the first five books of the, of the Bible, the Torah. No mention of afterlife. That's why the Sadducees didn't believe in an afterlife or the resurrection of the dead, because they only accepted the first five books. And they have their confrontations with Jesus over this. The Jews did not allow necromancy, speaking to the dead. They didn't allow embalming the dead. If you even touched a dead person, you were declared unclean. There was so much in the law, so much in Jewish life, that was focusing them right here and right now. Why do you think that is? I'll read you a couple paragraphs from a book by a German scholar, and here's the way he looks at it. He says, Israel was constantly confronted by and fascinated with Egypt. Of all its neighbors, it was the land of the Nile that possessed the most excessive cult of the dead. No people were so obsessed with death and afterlife as were the ancient Egyptians. Death must have continually preoccupied the Egyptians with the, with the construction of pyramids for kings and huge burial monuments, monuments for high officials, with the decoration and outfitting of these tombs, cenotaphs, and commemorative chapels, with the preparation of statues and stelae and offering tables, sarcophagi, wooden coffins, and books of the dead, with the procurement of mortuary offerings and the conducting of mortuary rituals. Nowhere in the ancient world were there such a fully established belief in the afterlife. The faithful in Israel saw or experienced all of that up close, and they knew that such a mythicizing of death, such entrancement with the afterlife, could not be God's will, because it drew attention away from this world, which was God's goal, and fixed it on another. It replaced trust in God with concern for one's own eternal fate." What was the decisive 
What was decisive was Israel's insight that its God was a God for this life, a God who willed and desired this world. The world was God's creation, God's plan, God's joy, which God would not abandon in spite of the chaos created by human beings. God's love for the world was revealed in love for God's people, who were to be a blessing for the whole world. Always alive in Israel's cultural memory was the knowledge that it was sheltered within the hands of God. God was in its midst, standing by the people's side and not letting Israel fall. God had entrusted Israel with the land, a beautiful and precious land flowing with milk and honey. Again and again, this fundamental trust in God was put into words, in many narratives, but above all in the Psalms. So we could interpret the Psalms completely in terms of earth and imminence. And if you're not familiar with that word imminence, it means God immersed within all of physical creation. God is here, God is now, God infuses everything. So we could interpret the Psalms completely in terms of earth and imminence, God's presence. But if we look more closely, we can see that the psalmist speaks out of a confidence that extends beyond the borders of death. But whence this assurance? It certainly does not rest on dreams of the afterlife or speculations on eternity. Rather, the psalmist always sees the face of God who constantly accompanies her or him. So the one who prays this psalm is already living now, in this life, out of an experience of the sheltering presence of God. For such a person, death is no catastrophe. Israel's faith remains altogether earthly. But at depth, it is open to an action of God that encompasses even the realm of death and the underworld. The psalmist lives in profound confidence that God will not abandon her or him, even in death. People who pray this psalm know that they can trust God absolutely. You see, for Hebrews, there's only one world at a time. We have learned to live kind of with two worlds in our head. But for the Hebrews, it was just one world at a time. And God is always the God of the world that we're in. Not the world we imagine, but the world that we're in. Whether it's this world or the next, live in the world that you're in is the message of the Hebrews. With full trust that all is well, reflected in the life that we live. Now, initially, Israel was a full theocracy. That means that they looked to God directly as king, as leader. By the time you get to Samuel, the last judge, the people are pressuring him to anoint a king. He doesn't want to do it, and he thinks it's a rejection of him. But in Samuel 18, God says, no, it's not a rejection of you as judge. It's a rejection of me as their leader. And so their desire for a king, their desire to move away from a pure theocracy was seen as a rejection of God's leadership. But the people press on, and of course it creates all sorts of problems for them. But originally the Jews were meant to live in day-to-day trust in God directly, even in their own government, the way that the government was fashioned. They were supposed to live in day-to-day trust in God and not trust in their institutions. They couldn't do it. It was too scary. It was too much like freelance work. 
They wanted the same kind of certainty that they saw in the neighboring nations around them. They wanted to trust in their institutions. They wanted to trust in a physical king. But there's another beautiful il illustration of the type of life that we're looking at here when we talk about the Pentecost life that comes out of Egypt with the Jews. I want to read Deuteronomy 11, starting at verse 10. Take a listen. For the land into which you are entering to possess it is not like the land of the Egyptians which you came from which you came, where you used to sow your seed and water it with your foot like a vegetable garden. I love that where you used to sow your seed and water it with your foot like a vegetable garden. But the land into which you are about to cross to possess it, a land of hills and valleys, drinks water from the rain of heaven, a land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it, from the beginning even to the end of the year. I want you to think about this for a second. Egypt and also Assyria and Babylon and all the great cultures, all the great empires of the Near East had massive rivers where they lived. The Tigris, the Euphrates, the Nile. These rivers gave a constant water source. These rivers had an annual flood cycle where the, they flooded all the land for miles on either side of the original banks of the river, bringing all that rich silt that, that was nutrient. It was like mulching your, your yard every single year naturally through this. And the rivers could be channeled. The rivers could be controlled. The rivers could be diverted and directed. So you could irrigate, and you had this constant source for your agriculture. You had a base on which you could live. And the truth of the matter is, great civilizations cannot exist, cannot grow to be great civilizations without this base, without a salaried kind of existence, this life. Israel, the land of Canaan into which they went, even for it flowing with milk and honey, has no sufficient natural water source that can support agriculture. It doesn't exist. Little Jordan River can't do it. It's just basically a stream. They were dependent upon the rains, and only the rains. And the rain cycle in Israel is interesting. They have what they call the early rains and the latter rains, the Yore and the Melkosh. Just a little bit about these so you kind of understand where we're coming from here. Even though it is fairly late in the year, the terms of the Western, in terms of the Western calendar, the rains that begin in the fall are known as the yore, or the early rains, since it is the start of the rainy season. These early rains are reason to be glad after a hot, dry summer, and the ground can be broken up and ready to work the fields. Towards the springtime, around the time of Passover, Israel will have the latter rains, known as the melkosh, necessary for the ripening of the barley and the grain. The word for the former rains, yore, comes from the same root as to shoot or to cast or to teach, like an arrow being shot to its target, or information being directly delivered from teacher to pupil. The yore rains are sent down to soften up the ground, ready for the first round of planting. In fact, God's teaching is also compared to the sending of rain in Deuteronomy 32. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. The latter rains, Malkush, are much harder rains that would have just caused flooding and devastation if they had come earlier on the dusty, dry ground. 
But these latter spring rains are essential for the agricultural cycle too. The Gezer calendar, an archaeological relic with inscriptions from the time of Solomon, tells us that in January slash February time, there was a second round of later planting in ancient Israel's agricultural year called the Lakesh. The word for these harder later rains, Melkosh, is related to the Lakesh. The latter downpours can more easily penetrate the softer ground and bring forth a second harvest in the spring. And so they have two rains, one in late October into November, the early rains, the Yore, and then later, March, April, they have the harder latter rains. Try to imagine just for a second the importance, how important these rains are. Life is being lived on a razor's edge here. These rains are literally the difference between life and death. Survival, not survival, right? Each rain that comes is like a freelance job that you get. (laughs) That pays the bills for another month, gets you through, gives you a sigh of relief, gives you something to celebrate. But it's only going to last so long, and then you're going to need the next job. The people prayed for rain. Of course they prayed for rain. These rains were everything to them. They didn't have a river that they could control, that they could divert, that they could count on. They had to wait for the water to fall from the sky. There are three major religious festivals. The pilgrimage festivals are all centered around these rains and around the harvest that occurred because of these rains. The one in the fall, Sukkot, or booths, That coincides with the early rains, with the yore. It also coincides with the grape and the olive harvest. And it also was commemorating the time that they lived in booths, the time that they lived in tents in their nomadic existence in the wilderness. The second Pesach, Passover, just passed here in the spring, coinciding with the latter rains, with the Melkosh, also coinciding with the barley harvest and with Passover and the liberation that we talked about. And then 50 days later, the count that we're in right now, 49 plus 1, Shavuot, the, the, the early summertime, which coincides with the wheat harvest. Everything centered around the rains. Everything centered around agriculture. These were the staples, the barley and the wheat, the olives and the grapes added to their dairy and their meat, not from cattle, but from sheep and from goats. This was their diet. This was everything to them. This was life and death. The timing and the reliability of these rains, of course, were critical. And the people were completely dependent on these rains falling. It kept them close to the earth. It kept them close in connection with God because they saw God as the one who showered the rains upon them, on the land, on all creation. It kept them in creation, not above it, not outside it, as you can begin to imagine when you control the water, when you have put concrete over every patch of dirt that you can see from anywhere in the city, and you can start to imagine that you are not of nature anymore. You're somehow hovering over it, outside of it. These people could not do that. They were dependent on the cycles of the earth itself for everything. The people could control the rivers, but they couldn't control the rain. And that changed everything, everything. To be dependent on rain is to be dependent on a power greater than yourself. And this is the 
the situation that the Jews found themselves in as they moved into Canaan to be living day to day in an attitude of trust, not of certainty, not of control. How does Jesus put it at Mark, 20, at Mark 4, verse 26? Jesus was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. He does the prep work. He does everything that he's going to do, but then he just goes home and goes to bed. The actual work is something that is outside of his control. The conditions that make the the grain grow are outside of his control. He goes home and goes to bed. It might be a little bit clearer in the message version. Look at the way Eugene Peterson puts it. He says, then Jesus said, God's kingdom is like seed thrown on a field by a man who then goes to bed and forgets about it. (laughs) The seed sprouts and grows. He has no idea how it happens. The earth does it all without his help. First a green stem of grass, then a bud, then the ripened grain. When the grain is fully formed, he reaps harvest time. No control, no certainty, but a springing into action at the right place at the right time to be there when these critical moments pass to move the process along. Work, right? Diligence, yes. Hard work, but still knowing that you're not in control. How do you deal with that particular paradox, right? How can you live between the horns of those letting each of them have their dignity, have their place. And finally, at Luke 12, starting at verse 16, Jesus tells tells the people the parable. The land of a rich man was very productive, and he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God." All of these sayings of Jesus and so many more point to a life of dependence, of vulnerability, but of gratitude at the same time, of trust. You see the picture that Jesus is painting here, the kind of life that he calls kingdom. Each one of these is tied to kingdom. Kingdom is tied to Pentecost in a very real way. And if you really think about it, It's all about the laying down of certainty, the laying down of this illusion of control, laying down of a sense of entitlement even, that these things somehow are our birthright or are ours. It's the nature of Jesus' way, literally, to be anti-institutional, to break down those trappings that we instinctively want to rely on because they're visible, because they're right here and they're right now. Because as soon as you build an edifice, something, as soon as you irrigate and try to control outcomes, you've lost the edge of trust in your life. You're now relying on something that you think that you can provide. 
and you're no longer trusting. You're looking to self, not God anymore. Now, of course, you can work for a salary, and some of you say that you are, and still live in trust. Of course you can do that. And you can be a freelancer or a business owner and not trust at all. This is a metaphor. This is a metaphor that is pointing to a condition of the heart. So it's not about the outward forms. It's about the inward forms. But think about it. Every single one of us is living in modern Western America. We're living in an irrigated institution, if you want to think of it that way. We are living a life that gives us the illusion of control and certainty everywhere we look. Our lives don't reflect this model of living in Canaan under the reins that Israel and Jesus are pointing us toward. And so we're going to need to work harder to develop trust in unseen reign if that's what we want to do in our life, if we really want to live as if Pentecost has occurred, which is the only way for it to occur in our lives, then we need to start thinking about how we can move toward this. We speak of our country as Christian. We speak of Christian companies. We speak of Christian churches. But you know what? Those don't exist. A church, a country, a company... Any institution can't be Christian because it can't be moral. It can't be ethical. It can't be spiritual. It's an institution. It's something wholly apart. Only people can be Christian, can be ethical, can be moral, can be spiritual. There are churches of Christians. There are companies of Christians. And I suppose there are nations of Christians but it's the people that sanctify the institution and never the other way around. We cannot look to the institution and we cannot look to the church in the same way. The images, the rituals, the doctrine of religion, if that's used out of fear of punishment, if that's used out of simple obedience, if that's even used out of the egoic piety of thinking that we can do this somehow, elevate ourselves somehow on our own, then we're living as if in the rivers of Egypt. Attempts to harness and direct and control God are never going to be productive. They're never going to work, and they're never going to take us to the trust that we crave, but we're working against at the same time to create the illusion of control, the illusion of certainty, where only the reign of God exists, kills trust. And trust is the most important thing that we can have in our lives. Almost 30 years ago, when I was painfully learning some of these lessons, I wrote about one particular scenario. And I want to read a journal entry and see if this hopefully brings things home to us. I wrote this on Tuesday, September 21st, 1993. Some of you weren't even alive in 1993, were you? I don't know. At 9 p.m. at night, I was obsessively timestamping. Oh God, who art the truth, make me one with thee in everlasting love. This is not me, this is Thomas Akempis. It wearieth me oftentimes to read and listen to many things. 
It worrieth me oftentimes to read and listen to many things. In thee is all that I wish for and desire. Let all the doctors hold their peace. Let all creation keep silence before thee. Speak thou alone to me. Thomas Akempis. I put this here because I can't do any better. And it so perfectly captures my state of mind. And I can't believe I just happened to read it today. True to my form, I'm trying so hard to learn. I read the scriptures. I talk to my pastors. I look for ways to go back to school for the theological training. I go on retreats. I meet a priest who introduces me to a bookstore where I find Merton and Nowen, who lead me to Anthony and the Desert Fathers and Augustine and Aquinas and Camus and Dante and Maritain and Eckhart and John of the Cross and Hopkins and so many others I've never read who speak of Aristotle and Plato and the classical languages I can't read. And the preachers on the radio speak of Moody and Wesley and Calvin and Luther while I watch the fish and dove bumper stickers go by on the freeway with Jesus being sung to me in a thousand different ways in songs that begin to all sound alike, making background for talk shows that try to explain basic doctrine to confused callers, debating fine points of theology and social values, pre-millennium, post-millennium, pre-trib rapture, pro-life, choice, gay rights, family values, moral decay, church and state, Catholic and Protestant, conservative and liberal, Mutt and Jeff. That was 30 years ago. Sound like it could have been written yesterday, huh? Turn it off. Shut it up. Snuff it out. Noise by any other name sounds the same. I stand in front of the congregation at church Sunday mornings, my microphone between us. We sing. We sing loud. We sing loud into amplifiers that make us louder, almost loud enough to be heard over the drums and piano and guitar, well over the congregation who sings back at us. I sing the words of praise. Think of the notes I must hit. I watch the people sing and sway and clap and sometimes dance and sometimes cry. And I wonder if anything is going on here. What are we doing? I asked you last Sunday in the midst of all that noise, in the midst of my noisy week, trying to think through my cluttered brain. Then, down in front, kneeling at the steps, an elderly woman is transfixed in prayer, eyes closed, mouth moving, hands upraised. What is she feeling? Is it real? Is it you, Lord? The pastor comes by and lays his hand on her shoulder for a moment before moving on, and the look on her face makes me smile and frees up a tear to be wiped away. And I know that you put that look on her face, and I thank you for allowing me to help by being part of her experience. I don't get a chance to ask her, but maybe she gets that same look on her knees by her bed with her hair in a net and only a round wind-up clock clicking away as accompaniment. And maybe all of this is just unnecessary. And it is. I know it. But you use it anyway and give it the meaning it could never have on its own. But I realize more and more that I won't find you very often in the noise, Lord. And when I do, you won't speak to me as clearly or longly as you do on these silent pages. Not that you couldn't, but I can't hear as well, listen as well. I'm finding myself, who and how I am, through the measure of your presence in my life. Those activities, those modes and methods that bring me close to you are those that match the nature of my spirit, my silent spirit that doesn't speak 
but knows when it's home, or at least getting close. So I will use the apparent magnitude of your presence as my sextant to guide myself through the maze of books and sermons and songs and t-shirts and Christian gift shops that I may stumble across on my way home to you. See, we all have a choice to make. We can try to direct, we can try to control our lives and our spirituality. We can try to irrigate. We can focus on our institutions. Or we can just bless the rains as they fall. Accept that they come from above without our approval, without our knowledge, consent, permission, without our help. To graduate to trust is to leave fear behind and to enter gratitude, to enter the awareness of the smallest things. Even as we continue to work hard, to strive, to prepare for the rains, we can greet each drop as if it were the first with the same wonder at the miracle of grace that it really is. Let's pray. Father, we really don't want to live under the rains. That's just natural for us. We want to have more control than that. Help us to see, though, that living under the rains is what we really want if what we say we want is connection with you the removing of anything that blocks us from you, the connection with you and with each other. What we really want necessitates the reins in our life. Help us to begin to live as if, help us to begin to live as if the reins are already our sole source of sustenance, your spirit falling as it does without any warning, always blowing through unseen. Help us to live that kind of life more and more each day, to let go of the control, to let go of the things that we cling to, to let life unfold, unfurl before us, rather than trying to plan it to death in our minds every single day. Help us to let go. Help us to let go of the clarity in favor of the trust that will allow us to take sure-footed steps in your direction every moment of every day. Father, again, thank you for your love and your constancy. And thank you even for the fact that we can't love until or unless you loved us first, which you have. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.